The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Part 4 of The Awakening this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Part 4. Chapters 16 to 20. 16. Do you miss your friend greatly? asked Mademoiselle Rise one morning as she came creeping up behind Edna, who had just left her cottage on the way to the beach. She spent much of her time in the water since she had finally acquired the art of swimming. As their stay at Grand Isle drew near its close, she felt that she could not give too much time to a diversion which afforded her the only real pleasurable moments that she knew. When Mademoiselle Rise came and touched her upon the shoulder and spoke to her, the woman seemed to echo the thought which was ever in Edna's mind, or better, the feeling which constantly possessed her. Robert's going had some way taken the brightness, the colour, the meaning out of everything. The conditions of her life were in no way changed, but her whole existence was dulled, like a faded garment which seems to be no longer worth wearing. She sought him everywhere, in others whom she induced to talk about him. She went up in the mornings to Madame Lebrun's room, braving the clatter of the old sewing-machine. She sat there and chatted at intervals as Robert had done. She gazed around the room at the pictures and photographs hanging upon the wall, and discovered in some corner an old family album which she examined with the keenest interest, appealing to Madame Lebrun for enlightenment concerning the many figures and faces which she discovered between its pages. There was a picture of Madame Lebrun with Robert as a baby, seated in her lap, a round-faced infant with a fist in his mouth. The eyes alone in the baby suggested the man. And that was he also in kilts at the age of five, wearing long curls and holding a whip in his hand. It made Edna laugh and she laughed, too, at the portrait in his first long trousers, while another interested her, taken when he left for college, looking thin, long-faced, with eyes full of fire, ambition, and great intentions. But there was no recent picture, none which suggested the Robert who had gone away five days ago, leaving a void and wilderness behind him. Oh, Robert stopped having his pictures taken when he had to pay for them himself. He found wiser use for his money, he says explained Madame Lebrun. She had a letter from him, written before he left New Orleans. Edna wished to see the letter, and Madame Lebrun told her to look for it either on the table or the dresser, or perhaps it was on the mantelpiece. The letter was on the bookshelf. It possessed the greatest interest and attraction for Edna. The envelope, its size and shape, the postmark, the handwriting. She examined every detail of the outside before opening it. There were only a few lines, setting forth that he would leave the city that afternoon, that he had packed his trunk in good shape, that he was well, and sent her his love, and begged to be affectionately remembered to all. There was no special message to Edna, except a postscript saying that if Mrs. Pontellier desired to finish the book which he had been reading to her, his mother would find it in his room, among other books there on the table. Edna experienced a pang of jealousy, because he had written to his mother, rather than to her. Everyone seemed to take for granted that she missed him. 
even her husband, when he came down the Saturday following Robert's departure, expressed regret that he had gone. "'How do you get on without him, Edna?' he asked. "'It's very dull without him,' she admitted. Mr. Pontellier had seen Robert in the city, and Edna asked him a dozen questions or more. Where had they met? On Carondelet Street in the morning. They had gone in and had a drink and cigar together. What had they talked about? Chiefly about his prospects in Mexico, which Mr. Pontellier thought were promising. How did he look? How did he seem? Grave or gay or how? Quite cheerful, and wholly taken up with the idea of his trip, which Mr. Pontellier found altogether natural in a young fellow about to seek fortune and adventure in a strange queer country. Edna tapped her foot impatiently, and wondered why the children persisted in playing in the sun when they might be under the trees. She went down and led them out of the sun, scolding the quadroon for not being more attentive. It did not strike her as in the least grotesque that she should be making of Robert the object of conversation, and leading her husband to speak of him. The sentiment which she entertained for Robert in no way resembled that which she felt for her husband, or had ever felt, or ever expected to feel. She had all her life long been accustomed to harbour thoughts and emotions which never voiced themselves. They had never taken the form of struggles. They belonged to her and were her own, and she entertained the conviction that she had a right to them, and that they concerned no one but herself. Edna had once told Madame Ratignolle that she would never sacrifice herself for her children, or for any one. Then had followed a rather heated argument. The two women did not appear to understand one another, or to be talking the same language. Edna tried to appease her friend, to explain. "'I would give up the unessential. I would give my money. I would give my life for my children. But I wouldn't give myself. I can't make it more clear. It's only something which I am beginning to comprehend which is revealing itself to me. "'I don't know what you would call the essential, or what you mean by the unessential,' said Madame Ratignolle cheerfully. "'But a woman who would give her life for her children could do no more than that. Your Bible tells you so. I'm sure I couldn't do more than that.' "'Oh, yes, you could,' laughed Edna. She was not surprised at Mademoiselle Rise's question the morning that lady, following her to the beach, tapped her on the shoulder and asked if she did not greatly miss her young friend. "'Oh, good morning, mademoiselle. Is it you? Why, of course I miss Robert. Are you going down to bathe?' "'Why should I go down to bathe at the very end of the season, when I haven't been in the surf all summer?' replied the woman, disagreeably. "'I beg your pardon,' offered Edna, in some embarrassment, for she should have remembered that Mademoiselle Rise's avoidance of the water had furnished a theme for much pleasantry. Some among them thought it was on account of her false hair, or the dread of getting the violets wet, while others attributed it to the natural aversion for water sometimes believed to accompany the artistic temperament. Mademoiselle offered Edna some chocolates in a paper bag, which she took from her pocket, by way of showing that she bore no ill-feeling. She habitually ate chocolates for their sustaining quality. They contained much nutriment in small compass, she said. They saved her from starvation as Madame Lebrun's table was utterly impossible, and no one save so impertinent a woman as Madame Lebrun could think of offering such food to people, and requiring them to pay for it. "'She must feel very lonely without her son,' said Edna, desiring to change the subject. "'Her favourite son, too. It must have been quite hard to let him go.' Mademoiselle laughed maliciously. "'Her favourite son? Oh, dear! Who could have been imposing such a tale upon you?' Aline Lebrun lives for Victor, and for Victor alone. 
She has spoiled him into the worthless creature he is. She worships him in the ground he walks on. Robert is all very well in a way, to give up all the money he can earn to the family, and keep the barest pittance for himself. <laughs> Favourite son, indeed! I miss the poor fellow myself, my dear. I like to see him and to hear him about the place, the only Lebrun who is worth a pinch of salt. He comes to see me often in the city. I like to play to him. That victor! Hanging would be too good for him. It's a wonder Robert hasn't beaten him to death long ago." "'I thought he had great patience with his brother,' offered Edna, glad to be talking about Robert, no matter what was said. "'Oh, he thrashed him well enough a year or two ago,' said Mademoiselle. It was about a Spanish girl, whom Victor considered that he had some sort of claim upon. He met Robert one day talking to the girl, or walking with her, or bathing with her, or carrying her basket—I don't remember what—and became so insulting and abusive that Robert gave him a thrashing on the spot that has kept him comparatively in order for a good while. It's about time he was getting another." "'Was her name Mariaquita?' asked Edna. Mariaquita. Yes, that was it. Mariaquita. I had forgotten. Oh, she's a sly one, and a bad one, that Mariaquita." Edna looked down at Mademoiselle Rise, and wondered how she could have listened to her venom so long. For some reason she felt depressed, almost unhappy. She had not intended to go into the water. But she donned her bathing-suit, and left Mademoiselle alone, seated under the shade of the children's tent. The water was growing cooler as the season advanced. Edna plunged and swam about with an abandon that thrilled and invigorated her. She remained a long time in the water, half hoping that Mademoiselle Rise would not wait for her. But Mademoiselle waited. She was very amiable during the walk back, and raved much over Edna's appearance in her bathing-suit. She talked about music. She hoped that Edna would go to see her in the city, and wrote her address with a stub of a pencil on a piece of card which she found in her pocket. "'When do you leave?' asked Edna. "'Next Monday. And you?' "'The following week,' answered Edna, adding, "'It has been a pleasant summer, hasn't it, mademoiselle?' "'Well,' agreed Mademoiselle Rise with a shrug, "'rather pleasant, if it hadn't been for the mosquitoes, and the Farable twins.'" Seventeen. The Pontelliers possessed a very charming home on Esplanade Street in New Orleans. It was a large double cottage, with a broad front veranda, whose round, fluted columns supported the sloping roof. The house was painted a dazzling white. The outside shutters, or jalousie, were green. In the yard, which was kept scrupulously neat, were flowers and plants of every description which flourishes in South Louisiana. Within doors the appointments were perfect, after the conventional type. The softest carpets and rugs covered the floors. Rich and tasteful draperies hung at doors and windows. There were paintings selected with judgment and discrimination, upon the walls. The cut glass, the silver, the heavy damask which daily appeared upon the table, were the envy of many women whose husbands were less generous than Mr. Pontellier. Mr. Pontellier was very fond of walking about his house, examining its various appointments and details, to see that nothing was amiss. He greatly valued his possessions, chiefly because they were his and derived genuine pleasure from contemplating a painting, a statuette, a rare lace curtain, no matter what, after he had bought it and placed it among his household gods. On Tuesday afternoon—Tuesday being Mrs. Pontellier's reception day—there was a constant stream of callers, women who came in carriages or in the street-cars, or walked when the air was soft and distance permitted, 
a light-coloured mulatto boy, in dress-coat and bearing a diminutive silver tray for the reception of cards, admitted them. A maid, in white-fluted cap, offered the callers liqueur, coffee, or chocolate as they might desire. Mrs. Pontellier, attired in a handsome reception-gown, remained in the drawing-room the entire afternoon receiving her visitors. Men sometimes called in the evening with their wives. This had been the programme which Mrs. Pontellier had religiously followed since her marriage six years before. Certain evenings during the week she and her husband attended the opera, or sometimes a play. Mr. Pontellier left his home in the mornings between nine and ten o'clock, and rarely returned before half-past six or seven in the evening, dinner being served at half-past seven. He and his wife seated themselves at table one Tuesday evening, a few weeks after their return from Grandile. They were alone together. The boys were being put to bed, the patter of their bare escaping feet could be heard occasionally, as well as the pursuing voice of the quadroon, lifted in mild protest and entreaty. Mrs. Pontellier did not wear her usual Tuesday reception gown. She was in ordinary house-dress. Mr. Pontellier, who was observant about such things, noticed it as he served the soup, and handed it to the boy in waiting. "'Tired out, Edna? Whom did you have? Many callers?' he asked. He tasted his soup and began to season it with pepper, salt, vinegar, mustard, everything within reach. "'There were a good many,' replied Edna, who was eating her soup with evident satisfaction. "'I found their cards when I got home. I was out.' "'Out!' exclaimed her husband, with something like genuine consternation in his voice, as he laid down the vinegar cruet and looked at her through his glasses. "'Why, what could have taken you out on Tuesday? What did you have to do?' "'Nothing. I simply felt like going out, and I went out." "'Well, I hope you left some suitable excuse,' said her husband, somewhat appeased, as he added a dash of cayenne pepper to the soup. "'No, I left no excuse. I told Joe to say I was out, that was all.' "'Why, my dear, I should think you'd understand by this time that people don't do such things. We've got to observe les convenances if we ever expect to get on and keep up with the procession. If you felt that you had to leave home this afternoon, you should have left some suitable explanation for your absence. This soup is really impossible. It's strange that woman hasn't learned yet to make a decent soup. Any free lunch-stand in town serves a better one. Was Mrs. Belthorpe here? Bring the tray with the cards, Joe. I don't remember who is here." The boy retired and returned after a moment, bringing the tiny silver tray, which was covered with ladies' visiting cards. He handed it to Mrs. Pontellier. "'Give it to Mr. Pontellier,' she said. Joe offered the tray to Mr. Pontellier, and removed the soup. Mr. Pontellier scanned the names of his wife's callers, reading some of them aloud, with comments as he read. "'The Mrs. de Lacidas. I worked a big deal in futures for their father this morning. Nice girls. It's time they were getting married. Mrs. Belthorpe. I tell you what it is, Edna, you can't afford to snub Mrs. Belthorpe. Why, Belthorpe could buy and sell us ten times over. His business is worth a good round sum to me. You'd better write her a note." "'Mrs. James Highcamp. Huh! The less you have to do with Mrs. Highcamp, the better. Madame La Force. Came all the way from Carrollton, too, poor old soul. Miss Wiggs, Mrs. Eleanor Boltons." He pushed the cards aside. "'Mercy!' exclaimed Edna, who had been fuming. Why are you taking the thing so seriously and making such a fuss over it? I'm not making any fuss over it. But it's just such seeming trifles that we've got to take seriously. Such things count. 
The fish was scorched. Mr. Pontellier would not touch it. Edna said she did not mind a little scorched taste. The roast was in some way not to his fancy, and he did not like the manner in which the vegetables were served. "'It seems to me,' he said, "'we spend money enough in this house to procure at least one meal a day which a man could eat and retain his self-respect.' "'You used to think the cook was a treasure,' returned Edna indifferently. "'Perhaps she was when she first came. But cooks are only human. They need looking after, like any other class of persons that you employ. Suppose I didn't look after the clerks in my office. Just let them run things their own way. They'd soon make a nice mess of me and my business." "'Where are you going?' asked Edna, seeing that her husband arose from the table without having eaten a morsel, except a taste of the highly seasoned soup. "'I'm going to get my dinner at the club. Good night.' He went into the hall, took his hat and stick from the stand, and left the house. She was somewhat familiar with such scenes. They had often made her very unhappy. On a few previous occasions she had been completely deprived of any desire to finish her dinner. Sometimes she had gone into the kitchen to administer a tardy rebuke to the cook. Once she went to her room and studied the cook-book during an entire evening, finally writing out a menu for the week, which left her harassed with a feeling that, after all, she had accomplished no good that was worth the name. But that evening Edna finished her dinner alone, with forced deliberation. Her face was flushed, and her eyes flamed with some inward fire that lighted them. After finishing her dinner she went to her room, having instructed the boy to tell any other callers that she was indisposed. It was a large, beautiful room, rich and picturesque in the soft, dim light which the maid had turned low. She went and stood at an open window, and looked out upon the deep tangle of the garden below. All the mystery and witchery of the night seemed to have gathered there amid the perfumes and the dusky and torturous outlines of flowers and foliage. She was seeking herself, and finding herself, in just such sweet half-darkness which met her moods. But the voices were not soothing that came to her from the darkness, and the sky above, and the stars. They jeered, and sounded mournful notes without promise, devoid even of hope. She turned back into the room and began to walk to and fro down its whole length, without stopping, without resting. She carried in her hands a thin handkerchief, which she tore into ribbons, rolled into a ball, and flung from her. Once she stopped, and taking off her wedding-ring, flung it upon the carpet. When she saw it lying there, she stamped her heel upon it, striving to crush it. But her small boot-heel did not make an indenture, not a mark upon the little glittering circlet. In a sweeping passion she seized a glass face from the table, and flung it upon the tiles of the hearth. She wanted to destroy something. The crash and clatter were what she wanted to hear. A maid, alarmed at the din of breaking glass, entered the room to discover what was the matter. "'A vase fell upon the hearth,' said Edna. "'Never mind. Leave it till morning.' "'Oh, you might get some of the glass in your feet, ma'am,' insisted the young woman, picking up bits of the broken vase that were scattered upon the carpet. And here's your ring, ma'am, under the chair." Edna held out her hand, and, taking the ring, slipped it upon her finger. 18. The following morning Mr. Pontellier, upon leaving for his office, asked Edna if she would not meet him in town in order to look at some new fixtures for the library. "'I hardly think we need new fixtures, Léonce. Don't let us get anything new. You are too extravagant. I don't believe you ever think of saving or putting by." "'The way to become rich is to make money, my dear Edna, not to save it,' he said. 
He regretted that she did not feel inclined to go with him and select new fixtures. He kissed her good-bye and told her she was not looking well, and must take care of herself. She was unusually pale and very quiet. She stood on the front veranda as he quitted the house, and absently picked a few sprays of jessamine that grew on a trellis nearby. She inhaled the odour of the blossoms, and thrust them into the bosom of her white morning-gown. The boys were dragging along the banquette a small express wagon, which they had filled with blocks and sticks. The quadroon was following them with little quick steps, having assumed a fictitious animation and alacrity for the occasion. A fruit-vendor was crying his wares in the street. Edna looked straight before her with a self-absorbed expression upon her face. She felt no interest in anything about her. The street, the children, the fruit-vendor, the flowers growing there under her eyes, were all part and parcel of an alien world which had suddenly become antagonistic. She went back into the house. She had thought of speaking to the cook concerning her blunders of the previous night, but Mr. Pontellier had saved her that disagreeable mission for which she was so poorly fitted. Mr. Pontellier's arguments were usually convincing with those whom he employed. He left home feeling quite sure that he and Edna would sit down that evening, and possibly a few subsequent evenings, to a dinner deserving of the name. Edna spent an hour or two in looking over some of her old sketches. She could see their shortcomings and defects which were glaring in her eyes. She tried to work a little, but found she was not in the humour. Finally she gathered together a few of the sketches, those which she considered the least discreditable, and she carried them with her when a little later she dressed and left the house. She looked handsome and distinguished in her street-gown. The tan of the seashore had left her face, and her forehead was smooth, white, and polished beneath her heavy yellow-brown hair. There were a few freckles on her face, and a small dark mole near the upper lip, and one on the temple, half hidden in her hair. As Edna walked along the street she was thinking of Robert. She was still under the spell of her infatuation. She had tried to forget him, realizing the inutility of remembering. But the thought of him was like an obsession, ever pressing itself upon her. It was not that she dwelt upon details of their acquaintance, or recalled in any special or peculiar way his personality. It was his being, his existence, which dominated her thought, fading sometimes as if it would melt into the mist of the forgotten, reviving again with an intensity which filled her with an incomprehensible longing. Edna was on her way to Madame Ratignolle's. Their intimacy, begun at Grandil, had not declined, and they had seen each other with some frequency since their return to the city. The Ratignolles lived at no great distance from Edna's home, on the corner of a side street, where M. Ratignolle owned and conducted a drug-store, which enjoyed a steady and prosperous trade. His father had been in the business before him, and M. Ratignolle stood well in the community, and bore an enviable reputation for integrity and clear-headedness. His family lived in commodious apartments over the store, having an entrance on the side within the porte-cochere. There was something which Edna thought very French, very foreign, about their whole manner of living. In the large and pleasant salon which extended across the width of the house, the Ratignolles entertained their friends once a fortnight with a soiree musicale, sometimes diversified by card-playing. There was a friend who played upon the cello, one brought his flute, and another his violin, while there were some who sang, and a number who performed upon the piano, with various degrees of taste and agility. The Ratignolles' soiree musicale were widely known, and it was considered a privilege to be invited to them. Edna found her friend engaged in sorting the clothes which had returned that morning from the laundry. She at once abandoned her occupation upon seeing Edna, who had been ushered without ceremony into her presence. "'Cite can do it as well as I. It is really her business,' she explained to Edna, who apologized for interrupting her. 
and she summoned a young black woman, whom she instructed, in French, to be very careful in checking off the list which she handed her. She told her to notice, particularly, if a fine linen handkerchief Monsieur Ratignolle's, which was missing last week, had been returned, and to be sure to set to one side such pieces as required mending and darning. Then, placing an arm around Edna's waist, she led her to the front of the house, to the salon, where it was cool and sweet with the odour of great roses that stood upon the hearth in jars. Madame Ratignolle looked more beautiful than ever there at home, in a negligee which left her arms almost wholly bare, and exposed the rich melting curves of her white throat. "'Perhaps I shall be able to paint your picture some day,' said Edna, with a smile when they were seated. She produced the roll of sketches and started to unfold them. "'I believe I ought to work again. I feel as if I wanted to be doing something. What do you think of them?' Do you think it worth while to take it up again and study some more? I might study for a while with Laidpore." She knew that Madame Ratignolle's opinion in such a matter would be next to valueless, that she herself had not alone decided, but determined, but she sought the words of praise and encouragement that would help her to put heart into her venture. "'Your talent is immense, dear!' "'Nonsense!' protested Edna, well pleased. "'Immense, I tell you!' persisted Madame Ratignolle, surveying the sketches one by one at close range, then holding them at arm's length, narrowing her eyes, and dropping her head on one side. "'Surely this Bavarian peasant is worthy of framing! And this basket of apples! Never have I seen anything more lifelike. One might almost be tempted to reach out a hand and take one.' Edna could not control a feeling which bordered upon complacency at her friend's praise, even realizing, as she did, its true worth. She retained a few of the sketches, and gave all the rest to Madame Ratignolle, who appreciated the gift far beyond its value, and proudly exhibited the pictures to her husband when he came up from the store a little later for his midday dinner. Mr. Ratignolle was one of those men who are called the salt of the earth. His cheerfulness was unbounded, and it was matched by his goodness of heart, his broad charity, and common sense. He and his wife spoke English with an accent which was only discernible through its un-English emphasis, and a certain carefulness and deliberation. Edna's husband spoke English with no accent whatever. The Ratignolles understood each other perfectly. If ever the fusion of two human beings into one had been accomplished on this sphere, it was surely in their union. As Edna seated herself at a table with them, she thought, better a dinner of herbs, though it did not take her long to discover that it was no dinner of herbs, but a delicious repast, simple, choice, and in every way satisfying. Monsieur Ratignolle was delighted to see her, though he found her looking not so well as at Grandil, and he advised a tonic. He talked a good deal on various topics—a little politics, some city news, and neighborhood gossip. He spoke with an animation and earnestness that gave an exaggerated importance to every syllable he uttered. His wife was keenly interested in everything he said, laying down her fork the better to listen, chiming in, taking the words out of his mouth. Edna felt depressed rather than soothed after leaving them. The little glimpse of domestic harmony which had been offered her gave her no regret, no longing. It was not a condition of life which fitted her, and she could see in it but an appalling and hopeless ennui. She was moved by a kind of commiseration for Madame Ratignolle, a pity for that colourless existence which never uplifted its possessor beyond the region of blind contentment, in which no moment of anguish ever visited her soul, in which she would never have the taste of life's delirium. Edna vaguely wondered what she meant by life's delirium. It had crossed her thought like some unsought, extraneous impression. 19. Edna could not help but think that it was very foolish, very childish, to have stamped upon her wedding-ring and smashed the crystal vase upon the tiles. 
She was visited by no more outbursts, moving her to such futile expedients. She began to do as she liked and to feel as she liked. She completely abandoned her Tuesdays at home, and did not return the visits of those who had called upon her. She made no ineffectual efforts to conduct her household en bonne ménagère, going and coming as it suited her fancy, and so far as she was able, lending herself to any passing caprice. Mr. Pontellier had been a rather courteous husband so long as he met a certain tacit submissiveness in his wife. But her new and unexpected line of conduct completely bewildered him. It shocked him. Then her absolute disregard for her duties as a wife angered him. When Mr. Pontellier became rude, Edna grew insolent. She had resolved never to take another step backward. "'It seems to me the utmost folly for a woman at the head of a household, and the mother of children, to spend in an atelier days which would be better employed contriving for the comfort of her family.' "'I feel like painting,' answered Edna. "'Perhaps I shan't always feel like it.' "'Then in God's name paint! But don't let the family go to the devil. There's Madame Ratignolle. Because she keeps up her music, she doesn't let everything else go to chaos. And she's more of a musician than you are a painter." She isn't a musician, and I'm not a painter. It isn't on account of painting that I let things go." "'On account of what, then?' "'Oh, I don't know. Let me alone. You bother me.' It sometimes entered Mr. Pontellier's mind to wonder if his wife were not growing a little unbalanced mentally. He could see plainly that she was not herself. That is, he could not see that she was becoming herself and daily casting aside that fictitious self which we assume like a garment with which to appear before the world. Her husband let her alone as she requested, and went away to his office. Edna went up to her atelier, a bright room in the top of the house. She was working with great energy and interest, without accomplishing anything, however, which satisfied her even in the smallest degree. For a time she had the whole household enrolled in the service of art. The boys posed for her. They thought it amusing at first, but the occupation soon lost its attractiveness when they discovered that it was not a game arranged especially for their entertainment. The quadroon sat for hours before Edna's palette, patient as a savage, while the housemaid took charge of the children, and the drawing-room went undusted. But the housemaid, too, served her term as model, when Edna perceived that the young woman's back and shoulders were moulded on classic lines, and that her hair, loosened from its confining cap, became an inspiration. While Edna worked, she sometimes sang low the little air, Ah, si tu savais. It moved her with recollections. She could hear again the ripple of the water, the flapping sail. She could see the glint of the moon upon the bay, and could feel the soft, gusty beating of the hot south wind. A subtle current of desire passed through her body, weakening her hold upon the brushes, and making her eyes burn. There were days when she was very happy, without knowing why. She was happy to be alive and breathing, when her whole being seemed to be one with the sunlight, the colour, the odours, the luxuriant warmth of some perfect southern day. She liked then to wander alone into strange and unfamiliar places. She discovered many a sunny, sleepy corner, fashioned to dream in, and she found it good to dream, and to be alone and unmolested. There were days when she was unhappy. She did not know why when it did not seem worth while to be glad or sorry, to be alive or dead, when life appeared to her like a grotesque pandemonium, and humanity like worms struggling blindly toward inevitable annihilation. She could not work on such a day, nor weave fancies to stir her pulses and warm her blood. 20. It was during such a mood that Edna hunted up Mademoiselle Rise. 
She had not forgotten the rather disagreeable impression left upon her by their last interview, but she nevertheless felt a desire to see her, above all to listen while she played upon the piano. Quite early in the afternoon she started upon her quest for the pianist. Unfortunately she had mislaid or lost Mademoiselle Rise's card, and looking up her address in the city directory, she found that the woman lived on Bienville Street, some distance away. The directory which fell into her hands was a year or more old, however, and upon reaching the number indicated, Edna discovered that the house was occupied by a respectable family of mulattoes, who had chambre garnie to let. They had been living there for six months, and knew absolutely nothing of a Mademoiselle Rise. In fact, they knew nothing of any of their neighbours. Their lodgers were all people of the highest distinction, they assured Edna. She did not linger to discuss class distinctions with Madame Poupon, but hastened to a neighbouring grocery-store, feeling sure that Mademoiselle would have left her address with the proprietor. He knew Mademoiselle Rise a good deal better than he wanted to know her, he informed his questioner. In truth, he did not want to know her at all, or anything concerning her, the most disagreeable and unpopular woman who had ever lived in Bienville Street. He thanked heaven she had left the neighbourhood and was equally thankful that he did not know where she had gone. Edna's desire to see Mademoiselle Rise had increased tenfold since these unlooked-for obstacles had arisen to thwart it. She was wondering who could give her the information she sought, when it suddenly occurred to her that Madame Lebrun would be the one most likely to do so. She knew it was useless to ask Madame Ratignolle, who was on the most distant terms with the musician, and preferred to know nothing concerning her. She had once been almost as emphatic in expressing herself upon the subject as the corner-grocer. Edna knew that Madame Lebrun had returned to the city, for it was the middle of November, and she also knew where the Lebruns lived, on Chartres Street. Their home from the outside looked like a prison, with iron bars before the door and lower windows. The iron bars were a relic of the old regime, and no one had ever thought of dislodging them. At the side was a high fence enclosing the garden. A gate or door opening upon the street was locked. Edna rang the bell at this side garden gate, and stood upon the banquette, waiting to be admitted. It was Victor who opened the gate for her. A black woman, wiping her hands upon her apron, was close at his heels. Before she saw them Edna could hear them in altercation, the woman, plainly an anomaly, claiming the right to be allowed to perform her duties, one of which was to answer the bell. Victor was surprised and delighted to see Mrs. Pontellier, and he made no attempt to conceal either his astonishment or his delight. He was a dark-browed, good-looking youngster of nineteen, greatly resembling his mother, but with ten times her impetuosity. He instructed the black woman to go at once and inform Madame Lebrun that Mrs. Pontellier desired to see her. The woman grumbled a refusal to do part of her duty, when she had not been permitted to do all, and started back to her interrupted task of weeding the garden. Whereupon Victor administered a rebuke in the form of a volley of abuse, which, owing to its rapidity and incoherence, was all but incomprehensible to Edna. Whatever it was, the rebuke was convincing, for the woman dropped her hoe and went mumbling into the house. Edna did not wish to enter. It was very pleasant there on the side-porch, where there were chairs, a wicker lounge, and a small table. She seated herself, for she was tired from her long tramp, and she began to rock gently and smooth out the folds of her silk parasol. Victor drew up his chair beside her. He at once explained that the black woman's offensive conduct was all due to imperfect training, as he was not there to take her in hand. He had only come up from the island the morning before, and expected to return next day. He stayed all winter at the island. He lived there, and kept the place in order and got things ready for the summer visitors. But a man needed occasional relaxation, he informed Mrs. Pontellier, and every now and again he drummed up a pretext to bring him to the city. My, but he had had a time of it the evening before. He wouldn't want his mother to know, and he began to talk in a whisper. He was scintillant with recollections. 
Of course he couldn't think of telling Mrs. Pontellier all about it, she being a woman and not comprehending such things. But it all began with a girl peeping and smiling at him through the shutters as he passed by. Oh, but she was a beauty! Certainly he smiled back and went up and talked to her. Mrs. Pontellier did not know him if she supposed he was one to let an opportunity like that escape him. Despite herself, the youngster amused her. She must have betrayed in her look some degree of interest or entertainment. The boy grew more daring, and Mrs. Pontellier might have found herself in a little while listening to a highly colored story, but for the timely appearance of Madame Lebrun. That lady was still clad in white, according to her custom of the summer. Her eyes beamed an effusive welcome. Would not Mrs. Pontellier go inside? Would she partake of some refreshment? Why had she not been there before? How was that dear Mr. Pontellier, and how were those sweet children? Had Mrs. Pontellier ever known such a warm November? Victor went and reclined on the wicker lounge behind his mother's chair, where he commanded a view of Edna's face. He had taken her parasol from her hands while he spoke to her, and now he lifted it and twirled it above him as he lay on his back. When Madame Lebrun complained that it was so dull coming back to the city, that she saw so few people now, that even Victor, when he came up from the island for a day or two, had so much to occupy him and engage his time, then it was that the youth went into contortions on the lounge, and winked mischievously at Edna. She somehow felt like a confederate in crime, and tried to look severe and disapproving. There had been but two letters from Robert, with little in them, they told her. Victor said it was really not worth while to go inside for the letters, when his mother entreated him to go in search of them. He remembered the contents, which in truth he rattled off very glibly when put to the test. One letter was written from Vera Cruz, and the other from the city of Mexico. He had met Montel, who was doing everything toward his advancement. So far the financial situation was no improvement over the one he had left in New Orleans, but of course the prospects were vastly better. He wrote of the city of Mexico, the buildings, the people and their habits, the conditions of life which he found there. He sent his love to the family. He enclosed a cheque to his mother, and hoped she would affectionately remember him to all his friends. That was about the substance of the two letters. Edna felt that if there had been a message for her, she would have received it. The despondent frame of mind in which she had left home began again to overtake her, and she remembered that she had wished to find Mademoiselle Rise. Madame Lebrun knew where Mademoiselle Rise lived. She gave Edna the address, regretting that she would not consent to stay and spend the remainder of the afternoon, and pay a visit to Mademoiselle Rise some other day. The afternoon was already well advanced. Victor escorted her out upon the banquette, lifted her parasol, and held it over her while he walked to the car with her. He entreated her to bear in mind that the disclosures of the afternoon were strictly confidential. She laughed and bantered him a little, remembering too late that she should have been dignified and reserved. "'How handsome Mrs. Pontellier looked!' said Madame Lebrun to her son. "'Ravishing,' he admitted. "'The city atmosphere has improved her. Some way she doesn't seem like the same woman.'" End of Part 4